0: Welcome to the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre podcast. I'm Natalie Pearson and today I'm joined by Dr. Pichamon Yapantong, an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow and Senior Lecturer in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at UNSW Canberra, where she also leads the Responsible Business Lab and Environmental Justice and Human Rights Project. Pichamon is a China specialist working on Southeast Asia. Her research focuses on Chinese foreign policy and the political economy of sustainable development, including resource conflict and energy transitions. And she particularly looks at how to better regulate Chinese resource and infrastructure investment overseas. Her list of awards and prizes is extensive, so suffice to say that she's a recognised global leader, and we are very lucky to have her with us on the podcast today. Pichamon, thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, Thank you very much Natalie for that very kind introduction and I'm very pleased to be speaking with you today.
0: So Pichamon you actually joined us for the ASEAN Forum a couple of years ago here at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre where you talked about your research on China in and on Southeast Asia and this is a big and complex topic at the best of times but particularly so in the time of COVID-19. So what I'd like to focus on today is the impact of COVID-19 on Southeast Asia's relations with and perceptions of China, and perhaps invite you to start by sketching out this issue in very broad brushstrokes for us uh, before we get into uh, a few of the sub-themes in more detail.
1: Definitely, and I still have very fond memories of speaking at the forum, so thank you very much for those memories. What we're seeing in these unprecedented times are major upheavals um, in both human and economic terms. Um, And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is first and foremost a human tragedy. But if the economic implications of this pandemic aren't appropriately dealt with, then we will surely see longer term implications we're starting to see governments in Southeast Asia and of course in China paying increasing heed to these issues because of the major economic repercussions that COVID-19 has already had on the region. And of course, a lot of the debate currently has centered on the problem of China-dependent supply chains. And this is a major issue in Southeast Asia, where a lot of the manufacturing tourism sectors are highly dependent on Chinese money coming through. And so if we look at the fact that tourism manufacturing has gradually collapsed in Southeast Asia, if we look at The increase also in anti-Chinese sentiments across the region, in Indonesia, the Philippines, even in Cambodia amongst local people there, it is extremely worrying the state of Chinese um, Southeast Asian relations. And this is despite the fact that many of the governments in Southeast Asia have, of course, said that, you know, we're kind of all in this together and China will continue to be a major power in the region. But it really is the case that we will definitely see a shift in the nature of China's bilateral relations with other countries in Southeast Asia. And as a result, it is imperative that Beijing carefully considers how it plans its next moves in both human security and economic security terms.
0: So, pitchman I understand that You recently came back from fieldwork in Southeast Asia in February, so you must have um, just got back into the country before the Australian borders were closed, and that when you were in Cambodia, you were observing factories, and in particular, garment factories. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: So I I guess there are a lot of implications arising from COVID-19 on human rights uh, in relation to China-dependent industry supply chains in Southeast Asia.
1: Most definitely, yes. And this is one of the hottest issues being discussed and debated right now.
0: So could you tell us what some of those human rights implications might be in the short term, but potentially longer term?
1: Certainly. I mean, a lot of the discussion right now has been on the impacts of COVID-19 on constraining civic space, especially in autocratic or authoritarian country contexts and of course there are very real concerns about how certain governments might use COVID-19 as an excuse to increase their draconian already draconian measures and to impose and even greater control over their populations. But the human impacts of COVID-19, of course, is again related to economic concerns as well. So we witnessed how garment factory workers, mainly women in Myanmar, have come out and staged protests because they no longer have jobs, they no longer have uh, livelihoods to sustain their families. Um, And this is a very real and long-term concern. Because as what we've seen so far, the Myanmar government, for example, has more or less engaged in very uncoordinated policy planning across its different agencies. But at the same time, it also brings into question that broader issue about being overly reliant on China. So if I were to go into the garment sector more specifically A lot of the employees are women. A lot of them are migrant workers. In Myanmar, you also have ethnic women uh, migrating to the Yangon region, for instance, to find work. And this is a similar situation in Cambodia, where a lot of the employees in the garment sector are also women. For both countries, the garment sector comprises a huge share of the economy. So in terms of Cambodia, for example, the garment sector accounts for $7 billion of revenue each year. U.S. dollars, that is. And so what we already are seeing is the sector is literally hanging by a thread, especially given that Cambodia has is not only suffering through COVID-19, but also through the partial withdrawal of the EBA. The EBA is the everything but arms, the EU's allowance for Cambodia to not have to face tariffs duties for certain imports into the European Union. Due to rising concerns over human rights abuses in Cambodia as a result of, for example, the kind of cracking down on the opposition party and political commentators who are critiquing the Hun Sen government, um, the European Union decided earlier in February to partially withdraw their everything but arms provision for Cambodia, which means that now a lot of Cambodian garment products in particular will be subject to tariffs, um, which would mean that the sector is bound to be less productive and will be less um, attractive to investors as a result. So we'll most likely see a domino effect take place. And COVID-19 has only further exacerbated these pending problems.
0: Pichamon, you might not know our postdoc, Christy Ward, but she's been working with our director, Michelle Ford, on a paper on union relations with the government in Cambodia, and particularly looking at garment sector workers. And I've seen a copy of the draft article. And what really struck me is that the Hun Sen government has, rather than simply suppressing the union movement, and I appreciate this isn't your particular area of expertise, but Rather than suppressing the union movement, they've actually been trying to engage with it because the government has realised that it is becoming such a force to be reckoned with that in their strategic interest to have those members on side.
1: Sure. I mean, and this is a another ongoing issue and one that COVID-19 has also spotlighted because in both Myanmar and Cambodia, even though, as you said, the Cambodian government has tried to perhaps reach out more to union members, especially those in factories, but they're still concerns as to whether or not these efforts are truly genuine. And so we're also seeing similar questions being raised in the Myanmar context where um, union members are coming out and saying that actually they've been sidelined and COVID-19 is being used as an excuse to further sideline them. So I think the debate wages on, but we certainly need more empirical facts and evidence to to talk about these issues in, in greater detail.
0: I'd like to turn now to the impact of COVID-19 on large infrastructure projects, particularly in relation to debt, which was already massive as a result of some of these initiatives associated with China's Belt and Road, for example, and the limited, increasingly limited ability of Southeast Asian states to pay back loans due to this expected slowdown in growth. So what are the implications of this? Will China's financing of large infrastructure projects in the region continue to exacerbate debt? And how sustainable is this model?
1: So I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is the fact that infrastructure will continue to be in demand over the longer term. Even though we are seeing infrastructure financing being stalled at the moment, but because infrastructure, of course, is a longer term investment in any event, and the need for infrastructure is unlikely to dissipate, given that you know people will continue to need to use roads, it is a sector that we can expect growth over the longer term, if not currently. Having said that, China's response to infrastructure financing and calls for it to provide debt relief, especially to developing countries, not just in Southeast Asia, but equally in the Pacific, in Africa and elsewhere, it's quite interesting how their responses has been mixed. Um, and I think this reflects Beijing's own attempt to balance between competing priorities, right? So on the one hand, needing to ensure domestic stability, to ensure that its economy has a chance to fully recover, but on the other hand, trying to keep up its image as a global leader, um, and to ensure that it's, you know, extremely ambitious, but also high profile Belt and Road Initiative doesn't fall by the wayside. As a result, what we're seeing is that foreign investment flows from China have, again, stalled, for example like there was a huge chinese consortium that was supposed to bid for the yangong elevated expressway which is worth about 16 billion us dollars they've actually pulled out of that as a result of covid-19 but just as foreign investment has stalled we're also seeing the chinese government coming out and officially confirming that its existing commitments to a variety of projects will definitely continue so for example, um, Beijing has already committed to 22 projects under the lancang Mekong Cooperation Scheme. And similarly, it committed to about 33 agreements under the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor, which is also part of that broader Belt and Road Initiative. So these are, are projects that the Chinese government is still keen to see move ahead. And it includes, very big and important, if not controversial, schemes like the Jokpu, Deep Seaport, and Special Economic Zone in Myanmar. So these are projects that are almost like flagship projects for the BRI, and as a result, the Chinese government can't actually afford to see them not be funded or, or progressed. And there are both geostrategic but also economic incentives mixed into that. So on the one hand, these infrastructure projects are seen as a potential source of China's economic growth rates. Um, But on the other hand, again, they're strategically important, so Beijing can't let them slide. Having said that, what does this all mean for debt sustainability and the economic burden that is then posed on Southeast Asian countries? We of course need to distinguish between projects that are financed by Chinese loans and projects that are financed by Chinese investment, but I don't think it's possible to cover all of the intricacies in a measure of one podcast. Having said that, it is the case that For Beijing itself, the question of providing debt relief to every country that's asking for debt relief right now is just simply not possible. And there are a variety of reasons for that. But firstly, it sets a dangerous precedent, even though if you ask me personally or if you ask the NGOs that I've engaged with, they will definitely say that debt relief is necessary. But for China, though, um, the Chinese government, there are different factors at play here. So a lot of these projects are underwritten, for example, by the domestic assets of Chinese firms. And as a result, you know, as a result of these companies putting up their assets as collateral, it's very difficult for any debt relief to be provided without these firms and having to take on the burden. At the same time, the Chinese government has been dealing a lot with the issue of non-performing state-owned enterprises for a while now and has been trying to prop them up. But as a result, there are other pressures that the Chinese economy currently faces. And so to be providing any form of large-scale debt relief is just not sustainable. And of course, given that China's own economic recovery is dependent on the return of full consumer spending, the return of the manufacturing industry to its former glory, so to speak, but also reduction in China's own debt levels, it does mean that debt relief is not an easy issue. What this does mean, though, is that the Chinese government needs to be much more careful in the type of infrastructure initiatives that it is seeking to finance and we're already hearing stories especially from Myanmar about how many of these infrastructure schemes are creating you know yearly debt burdens that can't really be sustained especially with covid-19 so i'm afraid i don't really have a clear-cut answer here but it really is the case that debt relief will continue to be the issue that countries in the region will have to grapple with once COVID-19 is resolved. And it's also an issue that the Chinese government needs to be taking into serious consideration, just coming out and saying that we will consider the risk of that unsustainability is not enough. And we're already seeing the Chinese government come to terms with that in the most recent BRI forum, for example, but rhetoric needs to be supported by actual practice. There is certainly a lot of expectation for the Chinese government to step up its game. And if it wants to be a regional player, one that other countries abide by and invest trust in, then I think the debt question is going to be one of the litmus tests that Beijing will need to face head on. I'm using the example of Myanmar a lot because I think COVID-19 especially in a country like Myanmar, the implications are even more severe, given that Myanmar continues to have ongoing ethnic conflicts. Its manufacturing sector is not fully developed yet. There are so many vulnerabilities in a country like Myanmar. But On the question of Myanmar becoming debt-ridden as a result of Chinese projects, there is one example of a steel project in the country that apparently is costing the government $345,000 in daily loan repayments to the China Development Bank. So imagine having to repay that amount of loans each day while dealing with an economic crisis, as well as a health and social crisis caused by COVID-19. It's very tempting, and and there is, of course, a very real need to focus on the plight of developing countries that are now in debt or that are facing debt-related crises. But at the same time, again, we need to consider the Chinese side, because calling upon China to provide debt relief is, while necessary, there are very clear limitations faced by the Chinese side as well. I think one of the key issues that COVID-19 has raised and really brought to the fore is the fact that the Belt and Road Initiative is also a huge liability for the Chinese government itself, both in reputational as well as economic terms. It was estimated in 2019 that expenditures along the Belt and Road amounted to about 545 billion US dollars. These are based on calculations, not yet factoring in the impacts of COVID-19, but it was expected to grow to $1.3 trillion by 2027. To add to that is the fact that a lot of these Chinese-backed projects tend to be over-reliant on Chinese workers. They also tend to be over-reliant on Chinese companies, on the provision of Chinese equipment and resources and raw materials, and of course, financing. And, and we already mentioned earlier about how China Chinese companies and Chinese banks might very quickly find themselves in the creditor trap as a result. But to link it all back to my early example of the garment industry in Cambodia and Myanmar, in Cambodia, 60% of the raw material that goes into the garment sector actually comes from China. For Myanmar, it's 90%. And so this, this level of dependency, clearly there's an asymmetry there where Myanmar and Cambodia are more dependent on China, but it's actually a dependency that goes both ways. China also is dependent on having Myanmar and Cambodia as viable export markets for its commodities and and raw materials. So it's a shared vulnerability in that regard.
0: Mm, I think you've sketched that out really clearly for us. You've covered a big range of topics and I particularly appreciate you joining us today because I know you've got a bit of a cough. So I'll wrap up here with one last question and it's a big one, um, but just to give us a sense of how China's foreign relations with Southeast Asia are likely to change.
1: COVID-19 is a litmus test for the Chinese government in many ways, but certainly when it comes to managing its foreign relations, COVID-19 is demonstrating how you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? To quote Uncle Ben in Spider-Man. But for Southeast Asia in particular, it's, it's one where we see kind of different layers to the challenge because, of course, governments in the region have more or less maintained friendly posture towards China, towards Beijing. Um, and of course, this is the case in a country like Cambodia where everyone knows Chinese investment and economic presence has been increasing. But even in Cambodia itself, if you speak to local people, the perception of China does vary. And as a result, this is where I think the Chinese government really needs to focus on, which is not just state-to-state relations, but equally on society-to-society relations and state-to-society relations as well. If we were to look at, again, rising anti-Chinese sentiments in Indonesia, for example, we're seeing how the China threat perception has been reinvigorated vis-a-vis COVID-19 and how this has implications not just to Chinese people, but also to the Chinese diaspora within the country as well as to Chinese Indonesians, which is very worrying given the country's historic issues with this particular community. Similarly, even in a country like Thailand, where the Chinese co-community is fairly well integrated, COVID-19 has exposed prejudices and problems of racial discrimination it's not to dwell only on the problems because with any major disaster or pandemic you see both the dark side of humanity but you also see the good side of humanity where people come together in solidarity to fight against a common threat to their existence but certainly in southeast asia i think there is a lot of um bubbling undercurrents that will make china be perceived in less favorable terms And as a result, how China proceeds in terms of its economic relations, especially with these countries, will have a very real impact on how people will come to see China, whether they continue to buy into this reinvigorated new China threat thesis, or whether they see China as a credible and trustworthy regional partner. And I think it's not enough for Beijing to simply be saying nice things. They need to substantiate it with actual work and action. And again, we've heard a lot of news media coverage on Beijing's so-called mass diplomacy and how it's been providing protective equipment to countries in Southeast Asia. But whilst these may well be good diplomatic PR stunts, there needs to be much deeper and longer-term engagement. And this is where Beijing seriously needs to deal with issues surrounding dependency on, on Chinese supply chains or the import of Chinese labors, for example. COVID-19 is bringing all of these issues to the fore. And so Beijing can't just be providing face masks to rectify anti-Chinese sentiments in the short term.
0: So, Pichamont, who's going to compel Beijing to do that? Is it going to be pressure that is exerted through ASEAN, for example, bilateral relationships, or is it going to come about implicitly through pressure on these infrastructure projects?
1: I think, to be honest, I think it will need to come from all directions. Because what we've seen in the past is that having just governments speak to one another is not sufficient in affecting change, unfortunately. But you actually do need to see bottom-up pressure coming through and, and affecting that change as well. When we think of Beijing, we think of it as a very abstract entity. When we think of the Chinese government, we think of an almost impenetrable fortress of sorts. Um, But the reality is that the Chinese government itself is made up of bureaucrats. It's made up of various agencies, often with competing interests and priorities, which in one sense offers windows of opportunities for people seeking to lobby or create change from within the Chinese government or through the Chinese agencies as well. So I think it's about actors wanting to affect change, looking for innovative ways in. And I think COVID-19 is offering that because right now, aside from dealing with the economic blowback of the pandemic, the Chinese government is also having to deal with the reputational blowback. Australia's call for an independent review and everything underscores that point so now more so than ever before reputation matters a lot to the Chinese government and so it's now really that different actors can voice their concerns and actually have a good chance of getting heard
0: that's a great point at which to end You've ended here with a brief insight into some of the opportunities presented by COVID. Pitchmon, thank you for joining us today and we really appreciate you sharing your insights with us.
1: Well, thank you very much. Again, I very much appreciate your inviting me to speak with you today and um, I very much hope that we will be able to weather the storm together. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, Look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.